The readings for the Immaculate Conception never change. They're the same year after year. And that means in the first reading, we always get to hear about Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. I remember once when I was just a baby priest, many, many moons ago, there was the Sacred Heart Kids Club on the first Friday of the month after school. And so I went in there and they were looking at a children's Bible, which was illustrated. Those are my favorite kinds of books. And there, there was a picture of Adam and Eve in the garden. They were hiding in the bushes. And I said to young Gabby, I said, Gabby, what's going on in that picture? And she said, that's when God took their clothes. <laughs> I don't think that was Adam and Eve's punishment, and I don't think that's why they were hiding in the bushes. We find out why they're hiding, because they broke the one rule. God gave them everything. God shared all that he had with them. He made them in his image and likeness. Sometimes we just let that go in one ear and out the other without really stopping to think just how great Adam and Eve were made to be in the image and the likeness of God, never to get sick, never to grow old, never to die. The Lord gave them the world, the garden, everything in it. He said, for your own protection, just keep one rule. Don't go anywhere near that tree in the center of the garden. Of course, then the slithering serpent has to come and convince Adam and Eve that God is keeping secrets from them, that they should go and be at that tree and they should eat its fruit so they can be like God. They already were. This is how Satan earns that title, the Prince of Lies. So much deceit. And Adam and Eve, they fell for it. And that forbidden fruit was sweet in their mouth, but sure was sour in their stomach. And then their nakedness, which once again was in the image and likeness of God, which was a masterpiece, a thing of beauty, just became shame. That's when they start hiding in the bushes. And that's where we find them today, hiding from God in the garden. Hiding from God has never been all that successful. I know I've tried it. Maybe you have as well. And God already knows what they've done. He already knows why they've done it. But he's giving them a chance to confess, to express some contrition, and to take responsibility for their actions. He doesn't really get what he's after. He starts with Adam. That name in Hebrew meant the first man. He wants Adam to man up and take responsibility for what he's done. Why did you do that? Why did you eat that fruit, Adam? She made me do it. Eve just gets thrown under that bus very quickly. And so then he wants Eve to explain herself, and all she can say is, the devil made me do it. With the first sin, the first excuses. And we have found that humanity has been on a slippery slope of selfishness and sinfulness ever since, where people often don't take any responsibility for what they've done, but rather like Adam throwing Eve under the bus, it's always someone else's fault. There's always some other reason that rationalizes or justifies what I did. And there's consequences for everybody involved in the story. Interestingly, even though we hear this reading year after year, in the lectionary that the church uses, <clears throat> the bishops and their wisdom who put these books together got to pick and choose uh, which verses would make the cut and which verses we gloss over. And there's four verses of chapter 3 of Genesis that are missing here, and those are the consequences for Adam and Eve. Instead, we're hearing about the consequences for that serpent. He will be kicked out of the garden. He will be cast down to hell. And there will always be an adverse relationship between humanity and this snake. But what about those four verses? Adam and Eve were banished from paradise. They were no longer going to be eternal. 
Adam was told, whereas up until now everything was laid out before him, he had to work for nothing. All of a sudden it would be by the sweat of his brow that he would put food on the table. Eve was told that she was going to bear great pain in childbirth. Consequences for the serpent, consequences for Adam and Eve, but there was also a consequence for God because of their choice. He wanted to be one with them. He wanted perfect union with them. That's why he made them in the first place. And that's certainly why he carved them in his own image and likeness. But since there are consequences for their actions, they will be separated from him. That means to a certain extent, he will be separated from them, but he didn't like it. God didn't want that to be the way the story ends because the creator longs for his creation to be joined to himself. So even though Adam and Eve had to leave the garden, And that might seem to some, well, that's pretty harsh. Pretty harsh to kick them out. Pretty harsh to not give them another chance. Pretty harsh to make them taste death instead of allowing them to keep their immortality. Well, looked at another way, God was showing Adam and Eve mercy by getting them out of the garden and by shortening their life. Mercy because the longer they lived, the longer they'd be giving in to temptation. And getting them out of that garden because as long as that tree was there and they were there, they were going to keep getting their hands caught in the cookie jar once sin had entered into the equation. But God could confidently remove them from the garden and end their lives only because he also understood what he was going to do to save them. Right at the very moment that sin was beginning at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God was already planning that one day there would be a new Adam, born of a new Eve, who would correct those sins on the tree of the cross. That's the first advent that we talked about last Sunday. That's how long God has been preparing for Christmas, for the coming of his son, for the forgiveness of our sins, for our salvation, and to get us back what they took from us, his image and likeness and the chance to live again and forever. It is in that context that this Feast of the Immaculate Conception makes greater sense because God wasn't just preparing for the Christmas story by sending Gabriel to Mary or by sending the Holy Family off to Bethlehem. God was preparing for salvation from the very moment of the fall after creation and in a most unique way by preparing Mary in the womb of her mother, St. Anne, to be the first tabernacle, the first monstrance in which he could place confidently the flesh of his only begotten son, Jesus. That's why this feast means so much to the church. That's why it's the patronal feast of the Diocese of Lansing, the Catholic Church in America. And it's also, I would argue, Mary's preferred title for herself. And we have some evidence of that back through the centuries. We'll be celebrating the day after tomorrow, December the 9th, the Feast of St. Juan Diego, and next week, December the 12th, the Feast of Our Lady Guadalupe. Well, those apparitions outside Mexico City, when a Blessed Mother is said to have appeared to Juan Diego, happened in December of 1531. And Mary introduced herself to Juan Diego as the perfect mother of the Son of God. Only one who was without sin could be perfect. Mary understood this about herself. But lest we're failing to see the connection, let's go forward in the centuries. Let's go to the 19th century. That's when Pope Pius IX 
defined this teaching about Mary's Immaculate Conception in 1854, but he only did so because he was stating plainly what the church had already and always believed about the Blessed Mother, that she was ever virgin, that she was conceived without sin, that she never sinned, and that is why we can celebrate her assumption each August because the wages of sin is death. Mary never sinned. Mary just went to sleep and then was taken body and soul into heaven. But in the 19th century, the very time when Pius IX was defining the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, we have some great examples of Mary uh, heralding herself with that same title, not seeking praise for herself, but rather giving praise to God through whom all things exist and for whom nothing is impossible. The first example that should be near and dear to our hearts is this parish dedicated to Miraculous Medal was in Paris in December of 1830, when the Blessed Mother kept appearing to St. Catherine Labouret in her cell of her convent in the Rue de Bac in Paris. One evening, one of these apparitions, after having had such personal interactions with each other, Catherine Labouret opened her eyes and she saw what we now see every time we look at the miraculous medal before us. And in French, around the Blessed Mother, what did she see? Well, we see it in English right there. Oh, Mary conceived without sin. And the Blessed Mother told her, have this metal struck so that my son will work miracles for whoever possesses it, wears it, and prays with it. That was Mary's instruction, how we are to call upon her. Oh, Mary conceived without sin. Another way of saying one who is immaculately conceived. But the last example has to do with perhaps a much more popular apparition of the Blessed Mother as far as the world stage is concerned, and that was at Lourdes, also in France, in 1858, and that was to young Saint Bernadette. Bernadette was from the poorest of the poor families of her village. Not too bright, never had a formal education. Her family tried to put her in religion class to give her something, and she managed even to fail that. Couldn't read couldn't write, dirt poor, and yet it was to her, not the worldly, the wealthy, and the wise, that our Blessed Mother chose to appear in the grotto at Massabier. And Mary appeared to Bernadette dozens of times, and at first no one believed Bernadette. She was getting beaten by her parents and grounded. The priest didn't believe her, the bishop didn't believe her, but then people started following her out there to the grotto, and they began to believe, not because they saw Mary, but because they saw the look on Bernadette's face when Bernadette saw Mary. And the 16th time that the Blessed Mother appeared to Bernadette at Lourdes in 1858, Bernadette had asked her repeatedly, who are you? Who are you? And it was on that day that our Blessed Mother told young Bernadette, I am the Immaculate Conception. She could have called herself any number of different things, but she used precisely those words that young Bernadette, who had failed religion class, would never have learned, never have heard, and never understood. And even when she went back to her family, they had to figure out what she was talking about because she didn't even know how to pronounce them. But Mary did. This is how she refers to herself, the Immaculate Conception, because she knew that was the means by which Gabriel's message to her was fulfilled, that she could indeed become the mother of the Son of God, that first tabernacle, and it changed everything for her, and it changed everything for everyone forever. And so on this feast, as we celebrate Mary who was conceived without sin, it wasn't for her benefit. It wasn't even for Jesus' benefit. It was for ours. 
it just reminds us yet again how much God loves us and how much he wishes we would love him in return.